podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I hope everyone's enjoying, or maybe a better word is surviving, the international break. Hopefully, I can help you get through this final week before Sedia returns. We'll do three parts today. In part one, we'll get caught up on our Primavera team. In part two, we'll provide an update on all of our players that are currently on international duty and how they're doing in World Cup qualifiers, African Cup of Nations, and international friendlies. And in part three, I'll give you my thoughts on Cristiano Giuntoli and whether or not he should be replaced. So let's start with the Primavera. We've played two games since our last update, first against Lernitana midweek, and then against Pisa on the weekend. The midweek fixture was our makeup game against Lernitana for match day 10. We were coming off a win against Regina, which was our first win in four matches. In fact, we had lost the previous three. Meanwhile, Salernitana, who were at the bottom of the table, were coming off an impressive and shocking 4-0 victory over second place Lecce. So let's start with the starting lineups. Salernitana lined up in a 4-4-2 with Davide Campisi in goal. Francesco Dimico and Mario Perone played at center back. Gaetano Gambardello started at left back and Marco Guzzo started at right back. Francesco Pezza and Andrea Vignes started in the double pivot. Massimo Arena played on the left wing and Angelo Guida played on the right wing. Finally, Giovanni Palmieri and Carmine Iannone played as the dual strikers up top. For Napoli, Emmanuel Cascione made four changes to the squad that he played on the weekend against Regina. Cascione also changed his formation again. He's been playing a 3-4-1-2 for most of the season, but he switched to a 4-4-2 for our win over Regina, and then he used a 4-2-3-1 for this match. Huberi Dasiak started again in goal. With the senior team on international break, Davide Costanzo returned to start at centre-back, alongside Jonathan Spedalieri, That meant Oscar Guarino was back on the bench. Vincenzo Potenza started at left back again and Benedetto Barba, who's normally a holding midfielder, played at right back. Raffaele Virgilio and Brando Sami started in the double pivot. Antonio Cioffi also returned from the senior team to play on the left wing, which pushed Valerio Labriola to the 10 spot. Giuseppe D'Agostino dropped back to play over Nathaniel Amoa on the right wing. Finally, Vincenzo Furina started at striker over Giuseppe Ambrosino. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. Salernitana had the first chance of the match in the 7th minute after winning a free kick on the right side of the midfield. Palmieri headed the in-swinging cross from just inside the area toward the near post, but Idasiak got across to push the ball to safety. Only a few minutes later we had a decisive moment in the match, Spedalieri won a header over Iannone to play the ball to D'Agostino just outside the Salernitana box. Perone was marking D'Agostino very tight so the small winger shielded the ball with his back to goal, let it bounce once and then cleverly spun around Perone to get into the area. D'Agostino went to ground and with Perone's arms draped around him, the official had no choice but to award the penalty. Labriola stepped up and sent the keeper the other way, firing his spot kick into the left side of the goal. That was Labriola's second goal from the spot in our last three matches. 
The other goal was in our 4-3 defeat to Pescara. We got a great chance to add a second in the 16th minute. Labriola played a perfect cross into the area from the left wing. Furina had a free header in front of the goal and should have scored, but he had the ball straight at Salernitana keeper Campisi. Napoli's next chance came in the 29th minute, and once again it started with Labriola. He passed to Sami in the middle of the pitch. Sami turned and fired a speculative shot from 35 yards out that missed the target, but not by much. Neither team did much after that, but Napoli was right back on the front foot in the second half. After an alert save by Idasiak on Petzl from a tight angle, Napoli came back the other way. Trophy picked up the ball in the Napoli half and showed why he's been with the senior team for the longest. He simply outran the Salernitana midfield with the ball at his feet, and though Napoli were 3v2, and though Trophy had Sammy open to his left, he elected to take the shot. Unfortunately, his effort bent just wide of the post. Slarnitana didn't really get their first chance until the 62nd minute and it came from a bit of a trick play. They won a free kick on the right side of the midfield. The Granata set up as if Vinez was going to swing the ball into the area. Meanwhile, Arena had casually drifted out to the right wing. No one was expecting Vinez to play a quick through ball to Arena, who then carried the ball into the area unmarked but his left footed shot from a tight angle finished just over the bar. In the 69th minute, Salernitana made claims for a penalty after Barba blocked a cross in the area. The Granata wanted a handball, but it wasn't given. Neither side created anything after that until the 93rd minute. Ambrosino did well to hold up playing the Salernitana half before playing Trophy into the area. However, Guzzo got back and made an important slide tackle. Salernitana got one final chance in the 94th minute with a direct free kick from about 25 yards out. Yanone went for goal, but Idasiak made the save. It was a really good effort, but it did appear to be bending wide of the goal. So Napoli held on for the 1-0 win. And with that win, we moved up to 6th place in the table with 2 games in hand over most of the clubs above us. So that brings us to this weekend's match, which was against Pisa. We were looking for our third consecutive victory. Meanwhile, Pisa came into this match in rather poor form. They were only three points behind us in the table, but Pisa were the only team to have played 14 matches at that point in the season, which was three more than we've played. They had not won a match in their previous five, including two draws and three losses. Ironically, their last win was a 3-1 victory over us, so they were probably looking forward to getting back on track against us. Pisa lined up in a 4-3-1-2 with Giulio Falsettini in goal. Giovanni Gaffi and Jacopo Penko started at centre-back. William Mauro played at left-back and Galipa Rapi played at right-back. Lorenzo Becchini started in the centre of the midfield with Albi Hanzari to his left and Enrico Sibiliotto to his right. Finally, Matteo Andreano started as the trequartista behind Bamba Suso and Matteo Panatoni. For Napoli, Emmanuel Cascione made two changes to the squad that he fielded against Salernitana. Cascione went back to the 4-4-2 for this match with Huberi Dasiak in goal. The back four was unchanged. Davide Costanzo and Jonathan Spadalieri started at centre-back. Vincenzo Potenza started at left-back and Benedetto Barba started at right-back. Ricardo Cataldi started in the centre of the midfield over Brando Sami. Cataldi played alongside Raffaele Virgilio. Valerio Labriola moved over to the left wing. He played as the number 10 in the 4-2-3-1 against Salernitana. Antonio Cioffi, who played as the left winger in that match, moved over to the right wing. Finally, Giuseppe D'Agostino moved up to play next to Vincenzo Furina as the dual strikers. So those were the lineups. Next, let's review the match. 
Napoli got off to a great start in this match in the 10th minute Virgilio won a free kick about 25 yards out with the spot roughly centered to the goal. Labriola executed the free kick perfectly. His shot went up and over the form man wall. Falsettini could do nothing but watch as the ball dropped into the bottom corner. That was Labriola's third goal in our last four matches and none of them came from open play. The previous two were from the penalty spot and then this goal came on a free kick. Napoli dominated for the majority of the first half. Our second chance came in the 22nd minute once again from a free kick in a dangerous area. This time Chofi took the shot instead of Labriola. Unfortunately he hit the wall and the ball rolled harmlessly wide of the goal. Labriola came close to scoring a second five minutes later. He and Furina played a lovely give and go in the middle of the park. Labriola took the shot from a similar place as where he scored from the free kick but this time his shot finished just wide of the post. Once again, Napoli attacked directly down the middle of the pitch. Furina played D'Agostino through on the left side of the area and D'Agostino had only Falsettini to beat but the keeper made himself big and stopped the ball with his chest. A minute later, D'Agostino had another chance on the same side. This time he cut into his right foot to drop Gaffi but his curling effort just missed the far post. Labriola, Furina and D'Agostino were playing really well picking apart that Pisa midfield and that back line. Pisa didn't get their first real chance of the match until the 39th minute. Barba played a pass back to Spedalieri inside our own half. The center back took a bit too long on the ball and showed Suso too much of the ball. The striker pounced on the ball and broke towards the goal. He had only Idasiak to beat but his shot was rather poor and the keeper made the save. The rebound fell for Suso as well but his second effort also missed the target. Unfortunately, moments later, Labriola had to be removed with what appeared to be a muscle injury. The same thing happened in the Regina match, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. That was a huge loss for us in this match. Labriola was probably our best player in the first half. He was replaced by Nathaniel Amoa, who played on the right wing, and Trophy moved over to the left wing. Pisa ended the half well and carried that momentum into the second half. Less than five minutes into the second half, Pisa scored the equalizer. Hanzari played a short corner to Andreano, who played a low cross in towards the near post. D'Agostino and Furina gave Hanzari and Andreano a little too much space to play that corner kick. Gaffi got to the ball before Spedaliari, who had a tough match, and beat Idasiak with his left foot at the near post, so that leveled the score at 1. Cascione responded by making a triple substitution in the 62nd minute, so clearly the Napoli coach wanted the win. Flavio Romano replaced Benedetto Barba at right back, Brando Sami replaced Ricardo Cataldi in the center of the midfield, and Antonio Vergara replaced Nathaniel Amoa on the right wing. Amoa had only come on to replace Labriola when he got hurt, so Cascione must not have liked what he saw from Amoa for the short time that he was on. Romano made his first contribution in the 71st minute, crossing to Furina in the area. Furina got a decent header off, but it was a fairly routine save for Falsettini. Cascione used his last sub replacing Furina with Domenico Di Donna and moving Trophy up to play alongside D'Agostino, but it wasn't enough. We had a few chances late in the match, including an appeal for a penalty that I thought was a bit reaching. Vergara won a free kick at the edge of the area in the final minute of stoppage time. Sammy shot crashed into the wall and our claims for a penalty were denied. That was the final kick of the match which ended in a 1-1 draw. This was our third positive result in a row with two wins and a draw, but we were probably expecting to win this one. 
Three of the other five matches on the weekend were postponed, so it's hard to get a true picture of the table right now. We're currently sitting in 7th place, tied with Crotone and Spezia on 18 points. Crotone have the tiebreaker over us, and Spezia have a game in hand. We still have at least one game in hand on all four teams at the top of the table, and if we win that game, we would either tie Intella for 3rd or 4th, depending on whether Spezia win their game in hand. The Azzurini will be back in action on Wednesday to play our makeup game against Regina from match day 3. So that will do for part 1. In part 2, we'll check how our senior players are doing on international duty. <laughs> In part 2, we'll review how our players did on international duty. We had 13 players get the call up, but only 10 of them will play at all, and some of them will have limited playing time, which is good for us as far as injuries go. The two players who will not play are Amir Rachmani and Stanislav Lobotka. Rachmani traveled to join Team Kosovo even though he had not yet recovered from his muscular injury. I was shocked that he even traveled because we knew that he had not yet recovered, but I think this was a bit of a political move. You might recall that during the international break back in October, no Napoli players traveled to play in the Nations League, African Cup of Nations, or international friendlies. That was right after the Juve game was postponed with the ASL blocking travel due to the risk of spreading COVID. Anyhow, apparently Rachmani came under a lot of heat from the Kosovar media for not joining his national team, so I think he made this trip knowing full well that he was never going to play, but instead to show his solidarity to the team and to his country. He basically did one training session and then flew back to Napoli to resume his recovery. The other player that is not going to play is Stanislav Lobotka. Despite getting the call-up, he did not travel to join his Slovakian compatriots due to a bout of tonsillitis. I was a little bit surprised at that because he is still training with Napoli, so he probably could have played for Slovakia, but he will not. The third player who will likely not see the field is Alex Meret, which is a good segue to talk about the Azzurri. I'm recording this on Tuesday morning, so most teams participating in World Cup qualifiers have played two matches. Italy played their first match against Northern Ireland on Thursday, and then they played against Bulgaria on Sunday. We have three players with the Azzurri, Alex Meret, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, and Lorenzo Insigne. Meret was not in the squad against Northern Ireland. Donnarumma started that match with Sirigu and Cranio on the bench. 
Meret did suit up against Bulgaria, but he was probably the third keeper. Donnarumma started again, and Sirigu was likely the number two. Di Lorenzo was on the bench for both of those matches. Alessandro Florenzi certainly appears to be the preferred option at right back right now. Di Lorenzo did not feature at all against Northern Ireland, but he did make an appearance off the bench against Bulgaria. He replaced Florenzi in the 68th minute, so he got a decent run in. The way Bulgaria were playing, he didn't have a whole lot to do though. He did put his body on the line to make a nice clearance before I believe it was Spezia's Andrei Galabinov that crashed into him. Our real star though is Lorenzo Insigne who started both of those matches on the left wing and of the three players he's the only player guaranteed to make the Euro squad. I think it's safe to say that Meret and Di Lorenzo are both unlikely to make the final 23 man rosters. Meret is a bit of a long shot whereas Di Lorenzo could squeeze in but we'll have to wait and see. But back to Insigne, he started in both of those matches. He played 84 minutes against Northern Ireland, and then he played the full 90 against Bulgaria. He didn't dominate the way he did in our recent Nations League matches, but he still played very well. He picked up an assist in both matches, first to his Napolitan Paisan Ciro Immobile against Northern Ireland, and then for Manuel Locatelli's goal against Bulgaria. Insigne seems to be developing a good rapport with Marco Verratti, who's been playing on the left side of the midfield in Mancini's 4-3-3. Our midfielders tend to play more centrally, which allows the fullbacks to get forward, so we saw Insigne play with Emerson Palmieri against Northern Ireland. That seemed to work quite well, which is interesting because obviously we've been linked to Emerson for quite some time now, so it's good to know that they can actually play together. But I really like the combination of Insigne and Spinazzola that we saw in the Bulgaria game. Spinazzola is having a great season for Roma this year, and he's carried that form into international play. You add Verratti in the midfield, and that's a pretty impressive left side, if you ask me. Italy play their final match of this break against Lithuania on Wednesday. So those were the Italian players. Like I said, we have a number of others, so let's quickly check on how they did. Most of our players were playing in World Cup qualifiers. Let's start with Dries Mertens, who's representing Belgium, playing in Group E. Belgium opened their qualifying campaign against Wales and won that match 3-1. Mertens played the full 90 minutes, which is the first time he's played the full 90 since he returned from his injury. We played him for 82 minutes against Benevento, and then he did not play longer than 67 minutes in our next four matches. Mertens had a couple of shots in that match, and he won a penalty kick, which Romelu Lukaku converted to score Belgium's third goal of the match. After the match, Mertens gave an interview to Belgian media outlet HLN, where he talked about his future after he retires from football. He said right now he is a king in Napoli, but it doesn't take much to lose the throne. However, that's not something that concerns him. When asked about coaching after retiring, he said no, it's too stressful. Coaches are always tired. For now, he wants to continue playing and he thinks that he can do it until he's 40, but there are other times where he thinks about having children and traveling the world. Belgium played their second match on Saturday against the Czech Republic and Mertens started that match as well. The match ended in a 1-1 draw but the real story, at least as far as Napoli fans go, was that Mertens was removed from this match in the 56th minute after falling awkwardly on his shoulder. Obviously this was a huge concern for us, especially after we lost Victor Osimhen for 3 months after he sustained a shoulder injury on international duty as well. Fortunately, the latest reports are that he was removed for precautionary reasons and that he did not sustain a serious injury. Belgium's coach Roberto Martinez said on Monday that after Monday's training session, he will evaluate whether Mertens and Carrasco will be fit to play in Belgium's match against Belarus on Tuesday. 
Piotr Zelinski is representing Poland once again. He played the full 90 minutes in both of Poland's matches. Against Hungary, he picked up a gorgeous assist on the second goal, which tied the score at two. That was one of the 56 passes he made in the match. Only three players in the entire match, all for Poland, completed more passes than Zielinski did, and he was playing in the number 10 spot, which is pretty impressive. Zielinski played in a deeper role for Poland's match on Sunday against Andorra. He played on the left side of the midfield in the 3-0 win. Once again, he completed more passes and had one of the highest pass completion rates of any player on the pitch. Poland played their final match on Wednesday, and it's a big one, against England. Another player to play the full 90 minutes in both of his qualifiers was Elif Elmas, representing North Macedonia. Like Zielinski, he played as a number 10 in Macedonia's first match, and as a left midfielder in Macedonia's second match. Elmas has become a key part of that Macedonian attack. Macedonia lost their first match against Romania 3-2, but responded with a 5-0 routing of Liechtenstein on Sunday. Elmas scored the fourth goal out of the five. He'll be back in action on Wednesday with a tough match against Germany. The only other player to play the full 90 in both of their World Cup qualifiers was Elsid Hisai. He actually played as a right wing back in Albania's 3-4-3, at least in the attacking phase, and then he dropped back into a right back role when defending. Albania beat Andorra 1-0 before playing their big match on Sunday against England. I managed to catch the first half hour of that England match before the UEFA app booted me out, but I thought at least for the first half hour he played really well. Not surprisingly, Albania's plan against England was to defend and counter, and they came close twice on the counterattack in the first half. Both times it was Hisai who created the chance. From what I read, he did struggle a little bit with the pace of Raheem Sterling, who must have drifted over to the left wing as the match progressed. During the part I saw, Sterling was playing more centrally, and Hisai was mostly defending Luke Shaw on the left wing, and I thought he did a good job of it. Hisai will play his final match of this break on Wednesday against San Marino. The last Napoli player to participate in World Cup qualifiers was Fabian Ruiz, representing Spain in Group A. Fabian did not feature in Spain's opening match against Greece, which resulted in a 1-1 draw. Luis Enrique decided to change things up for Spain's second match, which was against Georgia on Sunday. Fabian started on the right side of the midfield in what should have been an easy win. Spain left it late and did eventually get the win, but unfortunately Fabian could not take any credit for it. He was replaced by Thiago Alcantara in the 54th minute, and at that point, Spain were trailing 1-0. Given that, I'd be surprised if Fabian started Spain's final match on Wednesday against Kosovo, so what could have been a showdown between two Napoli players in Fabian and Rachmani could end up featuring neither of them. So those were all of our World Cup qualifiers. We also had two players participating in the African Cup of Nations in Kaladu Koulibaly and Victor Osimhen. Koulibaly did not play in Senegal's opening match against Congo. He was suspended for that match after picking up yellow cards in each of Senegal's previous two matches, both of which were against Guinea-Bissau. There were also reports that Koulibaly dislocated his finger in training, which a lot of people overreacted to. Finger injuries are really nothing to worry about. They put his finger in a splint and wrap it up, so I'm not expecting him to miss any time. My expectation is that he'll play in Senegal's second match of Group I on Tuesday against Eswatini, before returning to Napoli. Victor Osman played the full 90 minutes in Nigeria's first match in Group L against Benin. 
I actually made a small wager so that I could watch this match on a 4-inch screen on my betting app because I don't have any channels in Canada showing this game, and I'm glad I did, not just because I won the bet, albeit very late in the match, but because I thought Osman had a pretty solid match. Even though Benin parked the bus and looked like they were playing for a nil-nil draw, Victor still managed 6 shot attempts and they were all decent efforts. In the first half he had a low shot that he pulled wide of the far post, another straight at the keeper and then his best chance was a low shot that hit the upright and stayed out. Then early in the second half he had a shot sailed just over the bar and late in the second half he had two chances. The first was a header down and into the ground that the keeper did well to stop. The second was on a rebound from a corner kick that the keeper again did well to stop and on that rebound Nigeria scored the game winning goal. So like I said solid performance and most importantly Victor walked away from this match in one piece. He'll be back in action on Tuesday against Lesotho. Finally, Chucky Lozano was in action on Saturday for an international friendly against Wales. Lozano played the full 90 minutes as the center forward in Mexico's 4-3-3. The fact that Lozano played the entire match actually pissed me off a little bit. Lozano just got back from injury for our final match before the international break. He played only 17 minutes in that match against Roma. I see no reason why he had to play the entire match. I get that Mexico were losing 1-0 and probably figured they can potentially tie the match by leaving him on, but this was a friendly. There's no consequence to losing. Thankfully, he didn't get hurt even after he nearly got into a fistfight with some of Will's defenders. In fact, that passion, that grinta was something I was really happy to see from Lozano. But again, I did not think it was necessary that he play the entire match. Mexico have another friendly on Tuesday against Costa Rica. So that's our international update. In part 3, I'll give you my thoughts on our sporting director, Cristiano Giuntoli. In the final part, I want to talk a little bit about our sporting director Cristiano Giuntoli. I'm sure by now you've seen the rumors that De Laurentiis could move on from Giuntoli at the end of the season. The rumors were not as prevalent as say the rumors that Gattuso would be fired. However, the rumors were still there and a lot of our fans were asking for Giuntoli's head just like they were asking for Gattuso's head. That's really what motivated this feature. There are plenty of people out there who I think have legitimate reasons for wanting to replace Giuntoli. But I also get the impression that some people are just saying fire Juntoli because it's a popular thing to say these days. So I want to spend some time talking about the role of the sporting director. We'll take a very thorough look at Juntoli's track record and assess whether that alone warrants termination. And then in the end, I'll briefly mention my thoughts on a potential replacement. So let's start with the role of the sporting director because I think some people underestimate what's involved in that role. The specific duties of the sporting director vary by club, but at a very high level, the sporting director is an intermediary between the coach and the owner or the president or the board of a club. 
For a long time, the sporting director or director of football position existed in all of the major European football leagues, but not in the English Premier League. That has changed in the last couple of years, with most, if not all, Premier League clubs now employing directors of football. Prior to that, the manager played the role of both coach and sporting director, hence why they were called managers and not coaches. Nowadays, those terms are basically used interchangeably. So, what does the coach or manager do, and what does the sporting director do? In short, the coach is responsible for the day-to-day management of the current team, and the sporting director is responsible for building that team. That means the sporting director is responsible for the transfer strategy, i.e. player recruitment and sales, and for the youth system, i.e. player development. As an intermediary, the sporting director must work closely with both the coach and upper management. So in Napoli's case, Juntoli has to work closely with both Gennaro Gattuso and Aurelio De Laurentiis. The coach dictates the positions that need to be filled and the qualities he's looking for in players to fill those positions. In some cases, like with Timo Bakayoko, the coach will identify a specific player that he wants on his team. Now, sometimes the public knows that a specific player was requested by the coach, and other times we don't. In the case of Bakayoko, we know that that was a specific request from Gattuso, so we don't hold Juntoli accountable for Bakayoko's failure at the club. The owner dictates the budget and can be involved in the negotiations, which is definitely the case with Napoli. In fact, De Laurentiis does most of the negotiating, and that's where I think we're perhaps a little bit too harsh on Juntoli. I said this to Daniel Russo when we interviewed him on Forza Napoli Worldwide, but the fact is we simply don't have enough information. Take left back, for example. It's clearly our weakest position, and a lot of people blame Juntoli for not addressing that. But how do we really know that is on Juntoli? It may be, but it may also be on De Laurentiis. We all know how difficult De Laurentiis can be. In the last two seasons alone, Napoli have spent about 268 million euros with the purchases of Ospina, Meret, Manolas, Di Lorenzo, Almas, Lozano, Deme, Lobotka, Petania, Rachmani, Osman, and a few others. Now, we have realized gains of about 163 million euros on loans that were redeemed and on player sales. In other words, we've spent nearly 100 million euros more than we've brought in. So, perhaps De Laurentiis just didn't authorize Juntoli to spend too much more. Who knows? I certainly don't, and I'm willing to bet that you don't either. Now, of course, the players we purchase are amortized over the terms of their contract, so we didn't necessarily lose money on the transfer market. And you might think, well, if we spent 270 million, what's another 20 or 30? That said, while we may not have lost money on the market, we definitely lost money because of COVID. We also knew we were going to have another season, or at least a part of it, without fans, so revenue would be down this season too. As it turns out, we've gone the entire season without fans and lost a lot more money than we probably thought we would. Yet, even with COVID, we still spent 70 million euros on one player, and at the time, that position was probably our biggest weakness given everything that happened with Milik. You also have to consider the possibility that perhaps Gattuso didn't prioritize bringing in another left back, particularly when we already have five fullbacks in this squad because we still had Kevin Malqui at the time. That's actually something the club has said, that we cannot sign another left back until we sell one. Something I suppose you could legitimately criticize Juntoli for is not being able to sell a fullback, but I think that's a bit harsh of a criticism too. He tried to sell Gulam, but no one was interested in paying anything for Gulam with his 2.5 million euro salary and his history of knee injuries. Sure enough, he picked up another knee injury, albeit to the other knee, but as much as we love Gulam, he proved that he would not have been a good investment for other clubs. 
Juntali probably could have sold LCT side, but Gattuso liked the fact that his side could play on both sides. That's another thing people tend to ignore. Going back to the role of the sporting director, his job is to provide players that the coach wants, not what the fans want. It's quite possible that Gattuso said he was content with the left backs he had and preferred that the money be spent elsewhere. Hisai screwed us a bit as well. Gattuso wanted to renew him, but he kept on flip-flopping between wanting to stay and wanting to go. He didn't decide to walk until after the January market closed, and there was nothing we could do at that point. In all likelihood, that decision was based on the fact that De Laurentiis was not willing to meet his salary demands. So that's a situation where Juntoli was stuck between a coach who wanted to keep a player and an owner who effectively didn't. Then you have Mario Rui. Now, I know Mario Rui has never really been a fan favorite, but he did have a good season in 2019-20 despite the mutiny, so that may have given Gattuso a false sense of security at left back. Nevertheless, we've been linked to a number of left backs over the last two seasons, which suggests that Juntoli was in fact doing his job of identifying talent. But even that statement is draped in uncertainty. Often these rumors are created by the media who simply identify positions of weakness then they identify available players at those positions, and they connect the dots. Sometimes they turn out to be right, but even a broken clock is right twice a day. It's not uncommon for sporting directors to be asked about players that we are linked to, and they say they've never spoken to the club, so clearly these rumors are sometimes conjured up by the media. Just last summer, we were linked to Ajax left-back Nicolas Talifico and Dinamo Kiev left-back Vitaly Mikolenko, and then both of their agents confirmed that there had been no contacts with Napoli. But even if we assume that we are in fact linked to other players, it's still difficult to bring them in. Again, we have limited budgets set by De Laurentiis, and left back is a position in low supply certainly in Italy and perhaps all across Europe. Two seasons ago we were linked to a number of left backs including Levin Kurzawa, Sergio Reguilon, Timothy Castagna, Costa Simicas, Mark Cucurella, Junior Firpo, Emerson Palmieri, and Mikel Carbonic. Kurzawa moved from Monaco to PSG for a reported transfer fee of 23 million euros and a salary of 3 million euros. Even if we were willing to pay that price, good luck competing with a club like PSG who wins the league every year and is always a legitimate contender to win the Champions League even if they've never won it. Sergio Reguilon moved from Real Madrid to Tottenham for a reported fee of 30 million euros. He is on a five-year contract with an average salary of nearly 3 million euros. Castagna was sold by Atalanta to Leicester City for a reported transfer fee of 21 million euros, which was considered a steep price at the time. As much as we love Serie A and think it's the best league in the world, we cannot deny that most players want to play in the Premier League. Likewise, Simicas moved from Olympiacos to Liverpool for 13 million euros and a 2 million euro salary. That's certainly a price that we could afford, but again, just like Kurosawa's move to PSG, if a player can choose between Napoli and Liverpool, he's probably going to take Liverpool just on the basis of competing for a Champions League title. The possibility of signing Marc Cucurella, who we saw in action playing for Spain's U21 team against Italy on Saturday, fell apart when Hetafi's president Angel Torres told Radio Marca that De Laurentiis calls him every three days about Cucurella. That didn't go over well with De Laurentiis and soured relationships between the clubs, so again, that's beyond Juntoli's control. Junior Firpo and Emerson Palmieri stayed with Barcelona and Chelsea respectively and both remain linked to Napoli. 
The one player who I wanted and potentially could have joined was Mikhail Karbonik. He ended up moving from Legia Warsaw to Brighton, so another move to a Premier League club, but the transfer fee was only 6 million euros and his salary I believe is less than a million a year, so he's probably a player that we could have acquired. But the point I'm trying to make is even when Napoli are linked to specific players, there's usually a ton of competition and when you're competing with the likes of PSG and Liverpool, it's not easy for any sporting director to get those deals done. So let's talk about the deals that Juntoli has done. Juntoli joined Napoli in July of 2015, replacing Ricardo Bigon. I'm not going to talk about Bigon's track record or Juntoli's time at Carpi before he joined Napoli. That's actually a really interesting story, what's known as the miracle of Carpi. If you're interested, check out the feature I did way back in Season 1, Episode 19. That was really early days in terms of the podcast, so the audio quality wasn't as good, but it's a really interesting story nonetheless. In 2015, our key acquisitions were Alan from Udinese, Alberto Grassi from Atalanta, Vlad Kirikes from Tottenham, Mirko Valdifiori and Elsie Hisai from Empoli, and Pepe Reina from Bayern Munich. Now, other than Grassi, who was a winter signing, I don't give Juntoli too much credit for those acquisitions because I'm guessing most of them were in the works before he joined, but you do have to give him credit or blame for the dispositions. We paid 11.5 million for Alan, played him for five seasons, and sold him for 25 million. Sure, had we sold him to PSG, we would have made more, but to me, that's more on De Laurentiis and his stubbornness than it is on Juntoli, and that's still a very healthy return. We basically broke even on Grassi, Kirikes, and Valdifiori, and Reina only cost 2 million, so I think it's safe to say that we got our money's worth there. Hisai was definitely a missed opportunity. We only paid 5 million euros for him, and we probably could have sold him for 20 or 30 million euros. But as I mentioned, between Gattuso, De Laurentiis, and Hisai's agent, Juntoli's hands were tied. The 2016 17 campaign was a big one. We signed Arkadouj Milik from Ajax, Leonardo Pavoletti from Genoa, Piotr Zelinski from Udinese, Amadou Diawara from Bologna, Lorenzo Tonelli from Empoli, Emanuele Giaccherini from Sunderland, and we loaned Nicolas Maximovic and Marco Rogue from Torino and Dinamo Zagreb, respectively, with options to buy. Some of those were great moves and some were not so great. So let's start with the bad deals. Milik cost 35.2 million euros and after the knee injuries and his whole dramatic saga, we loaned him to Marseille with obligation to buy for 8 million euros. Obviously, Juntoli couldn't have predicted how that situation would have turned out. So though it turned out to be a bad deal, I don't think that one is on Juntoli. Pavoletti was definitely a bad deal. There's no denying that. We bought him for nearly 20 million euros at 29 years old barely played him and got no production for the half of a season that he was with us, then we sold him for half the price. Now some of that is on Sadi for not rotating, but this was a bad acquisition to begin with. Maximovic was also clearly a bad deal in my opinion. We loaned him for 5 million euros and redeemed him for 23 million, so he cost us 28 million euros. He barely played, which again is not really on Juntoli, but we probably should have considered selling him when we purchased Mano last. Now, I think we didn't sell him last summer because the plan was to sell Koulibaly, which didn't happen largely because of the financial impact of COVID. Lorenzo Tonelli cost us 11 million euros and we sold him for two and a half, plus we collected some loan fees, so that was a significant loss as well. However, those losses were more than offset by the purchases of Diawara and Zielinski. We bought Diawara for about 16 million euros, played him for three seasons, and then sold him to Roma for 23 million, so that was a very healthy profit. And we paid just under 18 million euros for Zielinski, who's at least tripled in value since then, 
and we've already gotten nearly five seasons out of him. That means his purchase has been fully amortized, so that was a complete home run. We also sold Gonzalo Higuain for 90 million euros that season. Obviously, Junto Lee was not involved in the purchase of Higuain, but he was definitely involved in the sale, though I'm sure De Laurentiis was the key player in that sale. The other moves that season were inconsequential. We essentially broke even on Marco Rogue, and Giacchini only cost 1.65 million, so that was a low-cost, low-risk play. The following season was fairly inactive. We bought Adam Unas from Bordeaux, Roberto Inglese from Kevo, and Mario Rui joined on loan from Roma. Now, you could criticize Juntoli for not being active, but that was the season we redeemed Maximovic and Rogue, which ate up 38 million euros. Not to mention, we were playing some of our best football under Sadi, who wasn't rotating anyways, so what's the point in bringing players in? We'll see what ends up happening with Unas, but we'll probably incur a small loss on him. We paid about 13 million euros for him and have essentially loaned him out ever since, first to Nice, then to Cagliari, and now to Crotone. Somehow we turned Inglese into a profit without him ever playing a game for us. We purchased him for 13 million euros, and between loans and then a sell to Parma, we made about 25 million on him, so that was borderline robbery. Finally, Mario Rui cost about 10 million in loan and transfer fees. He's in his fourth season with us, so in financial terms, this wasn't a terrible deal, but in terms of football, we can probably agree that this was not a good signing. That brings us to the 2018-19 season, which was a big one. Our key purchases were Fabian Ruiz, Simone Verdi, and Kevin Malqui. We also signed Amin Yunus on a free transfer, and we loaned three keepers in Alex Meret, Aretzis Karnetsis, and David Ospina. We'll see what happens with Fabian. I personally think he will be sold this summer for around 50 million euros. Now, on one hand, you can consider that a missed opportunity because we probably could have sold him for 70 or 80 million euros, but timing is everything. On the other hand, we paid 33 million for him and we've gotten three seasons out of him. One good one, one bad one, and this year has been kind of up and down. So to me, even if we sold him for 50 million, this has been a great deal for us. The Verdi deal is similar to the Inglese deal in terms of what we were able to sell him for. We purchased him for 27 million, played him for one season, and then loaned him to Torino with an obligation to buy for 24 million. So to me, that's essentially a break-even transaction. Finally, Kevin Malqui cost us 13 million euros, but we'll have to wait and see what comes of him. Unfortunately, Gattuso decided that he did not want to play Malqui. Between that and the injuries, neither of which were in Juntoli's control, his value declined significantly. That season, we also sold Jorginho, Matic Hamsik, and Duvan Zapata for a total of about 100 million euros, so that was great for our financials, but they were all players that we would probably like to have back right now. Now, let me pause here for a second, because I think if you ask most Napoli fans what they think about those sales, they would probably say something to the effect that we were stupid for selling them, imagine what we could do with those players now. That's true, we'd probably be better with them than without them, but most fans only judge a team based on its performance on the field and disregard its performance off the field, and that's fine, all fans want to see their clubs win. But the reality is a club has to balance winning with financial stability. We'd be hypocrites if we criticized the club for not selling Alain or Fabian sooner, but then also said we shouldn't have sold Jorginho when we got peak money for him. With Hamsik, there was obviously the situation between him and De Laurentiis, and then with Zapata, Sadi simply didn't play him, so you can't really blame the club for selling him. 
2019-20 was a big season as well. In the summer, we bought Costas Manolas from Roma, Chucky Lozano from PSV, Giovanni Di Lorenzo from Empoli, and Elif Elmas from Fenerbahce. We also redeemed Meret, Ospina, and Karnetsis. Then in the winter, we bought Diego Demes, Stanislav Lobotka, Andrea Petania, Amir Rachmani, and Matteo Politano. Now, it's hard to judge most of these moves because they were so recent that things could still change. As of right now, it seems like we've overpaid for Manolas at nearly 40 million euros. He didn't have great chemistry with Koulibaly last season. That improved this season, but he's also had his share of injuries, so I think this will turn out to be a bad deal. Lozano looked like a bad deal at 40 plus million euros after last season, but he's obviously turned things around this season, so I'd say we paid a fair price for him, and his value is still on the rise. I think it's safe to say that Di Lorenzo was a very good purchase. He cost us just under 9 million, and for how much he plays, that's definitely been a good investment. As of this moment, it seems like we may have overpaid for Elmas, who cost us nearly 18 million euros, but he still has a ton of potential. You just wonder if the next coach will unlock that potential because it doesn't seem to be happening under Gattuso. The same can be said for Alex Meret, who has to be the keeper of the future when we paid nearly 28 million euros for him. Ospina has been worthwhile given how much Gattuso has used him, and Carnetsis was part of the Osimhen deal, which I'll get to in a bit. As far as the winter transfers go, Deme has been a great investment and Lobotka has been a terrible one. That's largely because Lobotka was effectively replaced by Bakayoko, which left him no room to play. I know a lot of people don't like Petania. Personally, I think he's a very serviceable third striker, and I do think he stepped up when Osman and Mertens were hurt. At the same time, I think 18 million is a steep price for us to pay for a third striker. Finally, the Matteo Politano deal to me is very similar to the Chucky Lozano one. At first, it seemed like a horrible deal, but as it turns out, he just needed some time. He's been excellent this season, especially with Lozano hurt. A lot of Napoli fans went from wanting to sell Politano to now saying he deserved a call-up to the national team. So that brings us to the current season. We made only two moves worth noting. Obviously, we signed Victor Osiman for a record fee, and then we loaned Tiamoy Bakayoko from Chelsea. As I mentioned, Bakayoko was a specific request from Gattuso, so that's not on Juntoli. Fortunately, that was a dry loan, and it seems we have no intent of purchasing Bakayoko from Chelsea after this season, so that moves of little consequence. Of course, the verdict is still out on Osiman with the year he's had, first with the shoulder injury, then with COVID, and then with the concussion. I think most Napoli fans get that, but I've seen some Napoli fans and a lot of people outside of Napoli say that he hasn't lived up to the price tag. I just want to remind everyone that we paid 70 million for Osiman with the potential for 10 million in bonuses that probably won't be achieved, at least not this season. Also, of the 70 million, 50 million was in cash and 20 million was players, including Carnetsis, and three relatively unknown Primavera players. So let's not be too hard on him, at least not until next season. So that was a pretty comprehensive review of Juntoli's work over the last five years. For me, I think it's been mostly positive, especially from a financial perspective, and for that reason, I don't think he deserves the sack. I'll leave you to decide for yourself, but hopefully this assessment informs your decision. The last thing I want to talk very briefly about is the suggestion from a lot of people that we should make Rafa Benitez our new sporting director. Most people are proponents of that view because he had a great eye for talent when he was with us the first time, so why not make him the sporting director? 
I agree on his eye for talent, but in general, I'm not a fan of bringing people back, whether it's someone like Benitez to be sporting director, Sadi to be coach, or players at the end of their careers like Cavani or Hamsik. I'm fine with bringing back a player like Jorginho, who still has plenty to offer, but that's about it. Back to Benitez, though, you have to imagine him being between a coach and De Laurentiis. Now, you never know what De Laurentiis, even if you have a great relationship with him, that can turn on a dime. Gattuso had a great relationship with De Laurentiis, and now it seems beyond repair. But I'm more concerned about Benitez being responsible for signing players to play in another coach's system when he's been a coach for so long himself. That just seems like a potential for conflict to me, where Benitez may feel inclined to tell the new coach how to coach, or he may buy players that Benitez would want rather than what the new coach wants. So I don't want Benitez either. I'll wrap it up there. I hope this episode helped you get through the international break. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. We'll be back with a new episode later in the week, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre. Network.